0: His name would have never reached the history books if it wasn't for his friend running late. They had a tea time that afternoon, and he was at the factory to pick up his friend, but he was stuck in a meeting. Killing time, he wandered without purpose around the factory. As he walked, he fiddled with some rubber bands, wrapping them around each other, one after the next. By the time he looked down at what he made, the rubber bands had formed a ball about the size of a small plum, or a golf ball. He bounced it ball returned back to his hand with force. It had so much kinetic energy, it surprised the man. After covering that rubber ball with Balata Tree sap, that day, Cooper and Haskell invented the modern day golf ball. This is Beyond the Green. I'm Eric Cooper. The game of golf has a long and storied history. The tools themselves to play the game go back just as far. The first golf ball, by most accounts, dates back to the early 1400s and was made of wood. Beech or box root seemed to be the go-to material. Handcrafted by carpenters using only hand tools, they clearly weren't going to be perfectly round. Because of that, and striking them with wooden clubs, they had some pretty unique playing characteristics to say the least. The wooden sphere was quickly replaced with what was called hairy golf balls. These golf balls were hand-sewn leather balls filled with cow's hair or straw. As the Scots started to pick up the game, they began importing these hairies from the Netherlands at record numbers. They were used from 1486 through 1618, and even longer still. In 1618, feathery golf balls were introduced. They were similar to hairy golf balls, but filled with goose or chicken feathers instead of cow's hair. Because these golf balls were filled with feathers instead of hair, they were able to be stuffed more compactly, making the ball harder, allowing it to fly further. They were much more time-consuming to make, though, which made them quite expensive. The Harrys were much more affordable, labeling them as the common ball. To make a feathery, the feathers and leather would be shaped while wet. Upon drying, the leather shrank and feathers expanded, creating the desired hardness for the ball. Once dried, the feathery would be painted and the ball marker would add their mark. This process of making a feathery was very time consuming, bringing the cost of one ball oftentimes past what a golf club would cost. This almost ensured the golf ball was out of reach for the masses. Even so, its flight characteristics made the wooden golf ball and Harry's virtually obsolete. These featheries became the standard for nearly three centuries which is quite impressive when you think about the drawbacks to this ball. It took nearly a full bucket of boiled goose feathers to make a single feathery golf ball, and a skilled feathery golf ball maker could only produce about four of them a day. They were also virtually impossible to make truly round, which affected the ball flight. Once back on the ground, if the ball got wet, the feathery would start to fall apart and split. Golfers would try their best to keep their ball dry, but this was a damn near impossible task on the Scottish Lynx. So most featheries only lasted players on average two to three rounds. Alan Robertson, considered golf's first professional, was one of the best premier ball and club makers of his time. He had many protégés that he taught the fine art of making featheries. One of his best was a boy by the name of Tom Morris. In 1835, at the young age of 14, Tom began working under Robertson at St. Andrews. Tom learned everything Robertson knew about making feathery golf balls, and they became a great team. Until the advent of the gutty ball. In the mid-1800s, a guy by the name of Robert Adams Patterson discovered the sap from a sapodilla tree, native to Malaysia, had a rubber-like quality and could be heated up and molded into any shape you'd like. Placed in a round mold, when it cooled, it would harden and become what is known as the gutta-percha ball, nicknamed the gutty. The gutty became the first mass-manufacturable golf ball. Another advantage to this ball over a feathery was when they eventually went out of round, which they most certainly did, they could be reheated and remolded back into its round shape. Alan Robertson didn't like the gutty, seeing it as a threat to his business, but old Tom Morris disagreed. He saw the gutty ball as the future. Old Tom Morris went on to start his own golf shop after Robertson caught Morris playing with a gutty and fired him for it. As the gutty grew in popularity, a unique discovery was made. As the balls were played, they became worn, nicked, banged up, and with those battle scars, golfers noticed that the worn gutties flew with a more consistent flight over brand new ones. The grooves from previous hits cut through the air so well that players would intentionally scratch and mark up their brand new gutties before play. Golf ball manufacturers started creating a consistent pattern on their balls, using a sharp edged hammer at first, then adding dimples to their molds. These molds often resembled a waffle iron rather than a modern day golf ball dimple pattern. Golf ball manufacturers experimented with a ton of different patterns, testing their flights, then trying again. After a few years, one design finally stuck, the bramble design. It gets its name because it resembles a brambleberry, which had circular bumps all around the ball. The bramble design became the most popular and effective design for the gutty golf ball. In 1898, a man by the name of Coburn Haskell would revolutionize the golf ball. Born in Boston, Massachusetts in 1868, Coburn Haskell was your average upper-class kid that liked the outdoors. He was an avid horseman, duck hunter, and loved to play golf. He didn't have a lot of career direction, though. So at the age of 24, he moved to Cleveland to take a job his father set up for him. It was at a mining company that mainly focused on coal and iron. His father was friends with one of the partners of M.A. Hanna Mining Company, Mr. Marcus Hanna. He took well to the role, worked hard, never complained, made a decent living. Three years later, he married the daughter of Mr. Hanna and was settling into adulthood pretty well. Haskell had a friend by the name of Bertram Work that he played golf with regularly. One summer afternoon, Haskell came by the B.F. Goodrich's Rubber Goods Manufactory, where Bertram Work was employed to pick him up for an afternoon round of golf. Work was running late, stuck in another long meeting. So Haskell wandered around the factory, killing time. As he walked, he fiddled with some rubber bands, wrapping them around each other, forming a rubber ball. As he bounced it, he realized how responsive it was. When Work finally got out of his meeting, Haskell showed him what he made. Work suggested putting a cover on it and using it as a golf ball. They decided to start with a rubber core to wrap the rubber threads around, the rubber threads becoming a larger, round inner core. Covering the ball with sap from the ballata tree gave the ball its durability, a thin outer shell that could still flex with the bounce of the ball. Patented on April 11, 1899, Haskell began selling his new invention. It was an instant hit and became the new standard of golf ball all around the world. In 1901, he retired from M.A. Hanna to start his own company, the Haskell Golf Ball Company, to sell the Haskell Golf Ball. Because of its greater distance, the Haskell Ball reduced scores and helped considerably to increase the popularity of golf. Haskell dissolved his company in 1917, selling his patents to other companies, including the A.G. Spaulding Company. At this point, every golf ball had some sort of raised pattern on it to give it a better consistent flight. With the invention of the rubber core golf ball, a larger variety of outer patterns were tried out to get the best improved airflow. The mesh, reverse mesh, the bramble, until the dimple pattern was settled on in 1908. Once the outer pattern was settled, it was time to revisit the core. There was exhaustive golf ball design testing done with a multitude of different cores. At one point, a small sack of water was tried to substitute the rubber core. Steel, lead, glycerin. All tried, but nothing worked like rubber. Eventually, most golf ball manufacturers settled on the rubber core as the standard, but the composition of that rubber was specific to each manufacturer and was a closely guarded trade secret. The balata cover was replaced with urethane skins in the 1960s, since the balata tended to get beat up pretty quickly and didn't have much of a long lifespan. A new synthetic resin called serlin was introduced to create these new urethane blends that provided a more durable cover and less likely to dent. Manufacturers started layering the rubber cores, giving these balls new classifications by how many components are used, two-piece, three-piece, or four-piece balls. This layering technique allowed for these ball manufacturers to create golf balls with different properties to help with different aspects of the game. Some balls can fly further while others are designed to generate more spin. The golf ball has been an ever-changing piece of golf equipment. With the advancement in technology and simulations, the ball will continue to improve through materials and aerodynamics, but the core has found a comfortable place as rubber. That rubber core, Coburn Haskell revolutionized the game of golf with this one simple concept, fiddling with some rubber bands, winding them together over and over again, all while waiting for his friend who was running late. It's amazing what can be accomplished while killing time, so you have to wonder, what will the next guy invent when their friend is running late? This episode of Beyond the Green was written by me, Eric Cooper. Music credits are in the show notes. Until next time.